Happy New Year, nerds. Welcome back to Vassals of King's Grave, forging forth into 2023. However you celebrate and whether you celebrate at all, we here at Vassals of King's Grave wish you and yours a very happy, healthy and prosperous 2023. My name is Bina007. I'm one of the curators at Vassals of King's Grave. And let's chime in the new year with something suitably dark, gothic and murderous. <laughs> because we are not default. You'll need something with your hangover. And curling up with an Agatha Christie is the perfect way to start the year. Today, we're continuing our Agatha Christie reread with uh, The Sitterford Mystery, otherwise known as The Murder at Hazelmoor, which is the title under which it was first published in 1931. So we are moving now into the peak period of Agatha Christie's creativity. Some of her finest novels were written in this decade. And I think The Sitterford Mystery deserves to be considered in that. It's not typically, but it's very fine. It doesn't star Hercule Poirot or Miss Marple, so it sometimes gets a little bit forgotten, as some of those standalone mysteries do. But I think it's very fine. And for those of you who are fans of Sherlock Holmes and The Hound of the Baskervilles, then this is very much a novel that isn't so much spoofing or pastiching it. You know, sometimes in her early days, Agatha Christie was sort of trying on different styles for size and seeing what she wanted to do and finding her own voice. She absolutely has her own voice here, but she's really conjuring up and playing with that windswept Dartmoor environment. For those of you who know England, um, very wild, rural, isolated she has a snowstorm come in at the start of the novel. People are snowbound, tucked up together. And we have seances, we have spiritualism, and we have the very famous Dartmoor prison, which is well known to people in Britain, where sort of high risk convicts are kept. We have the bell tolling for an escapee. This is all very mysterious and brooding and dark and mysterious. So I love the Sitterford mystery. As always, I'm going to start off um, with a spoiler-free summary of the book. If you want to hear me discuss the ending and the plot resolution, stay after the end credits music. So let's start off with a little bit of a plot taster. It's 1931 and we are in a village where there is a large manor house called Sitterford House. And that is owned by the incredibly wealthy Captain Trevelyan. We are told repeatedly that the size of money that he has is more than most people think. So he's clearly a target for murder. He's never married. In fact, he, we go further. We're told that he really hates women, maybe because he was jilted early on. And he keeps himself to himself. But he does have one good friend called Major Burnaby. And Major Burnaby lives in one of the cottages that uh, Captain Trevelyan built on his grounds. However, Captain Trevelyan is not in residence at the time of the murder. He has rented out his house to a seemingly Australian mother and daughter, Miss, Mrs. Willett and her daughter, Miss Willett. And it seems weird that these Australians should come over and want to rent a house in the middle of winter in such a desolate place. But the money is good, so he lets it out and goes to live in the nearby village. So we find ourselves snowbound and on the evening of the murder, we have the Willets holding a table turning session. So table turning, what we would now call a Ouija board or a seance. And the Ouija board points and spells out the fact that Captain Trevelyan has been killed, has been murdered. 
And so his best mate, Major Burnaby, says, right, I need to go into the village and check he's all right because I'm totally spooked now, even though it's absolutely howling and gusting with wind and snow and it's going to take him a couple of hours to tramp all the way there nonetheless we know that major burnaby and captain trevelyan they're ex-army men they're hardy they're athletic so off he goes for the multi-hour tramp to get to the village and when he gets there and he calls the constable they realize that captain trevelyan has in fact been murdered there is a draft excluder filled with sand and that has been used to cosh him over the head. And so the mystery begins of who killed Captain Trevelyan. Now, there are some suspects, as always, <laughs> not least his nephew, James Pearson. So in, in, when you read the will, you realise he's left all his sporting trophies to Major Burnaby, but he split his property and extensive money to his nieces and nephews and James Pearson as a particularly sort of um, dissolute young gentleman as as many of these Agatha Christie characters are you know these charming but sort of feckless young men who probably imitate as we discussed in earlier chapters her younger her sorry her big brother who was very charismatic she loved him very much but he never made good and James Pearson is definitely in that category. But as is typical in Agatha Christie, these awful young men often seem to attract very strong, capable, smart, beautiful young women who are willing to care for them. And in this case, James Pearson is engaged to a really wonderful, yet another great female character called Emily Trefusis. And she is, I guess, one of the bright young things of our 1920s novels, but now it's the 1930s. So not as flapperish, maybe a bit more mature, though still young. And she decides to try and investigate this murder and clear her fiancé's name alongside the actual police force. We also have a young journalist called Charles Enderby, who was in town the day of murder, or rather in the village, because... And I wonder how far this is familiar to those of you who don't live in Britain and who aren't as old as me. But in those days, newspapers used to run competitions, things like the football pools, where you had to sort of guess the results of football matches or spot the ball, where if there was a picture, you'd spot where the football was. Or things like putting a person on the street in a certain disguise that you had to find, and then you could claim money. This is a big plot point in the wonderful Graham Greene novel, Brighton Rock. And it's also going to be part of the future Agatha Christie novel, ABC Murders. Well, in this case, Charles Enderby is in town to tell Major Burnaby that he's won a sum of money. But as soon as he realises a murder has been committed, he realises that this is potentially the big scoop of his life as a journalist. So he wants to investigate too. So he teams up with Emily uh, Trefusis. So those are the kind of the major actors in the plot. There are a few others, but those are the major ones. And I won't go further until after the end credits with the solution. But as you can imagine, this is a novel that hinges on what happened with the Ouija board, what happened with Trevelyan, who stands to gain, and the fact that the snow is a complicating factor in this case. Now, as I said in my introduction, this is a novel that very much is in the setting of The Hound of the Baskervilles. So for those of you who know that famous Arthur Conan Doyle story, you'll spot the similarities. And if you haven't read it, 
It's another absolute classic of the crime and detective fiction genre. I think one of the best of his stories, so please do. Both stories are set in Devon and have a very gothic atmosphere that is imparted by the suggestion of the supernatural. There's an escaped convict from Dartmoor Prison in both stories, which is a little bit of a spoiler, but not too much. If you if you know that you're setting a detective story next to Dartmoor, that should absolutely be something that you're looking out for. Both stories have a naturalist. So in this one, it's Mr. Rycroft, um, Jack Stapleton in Hound of the Baskervilles. And actually, there's a very cheeky reference that Agatha Christie makes in this in this story where um, when Charles Enderby is talking about the seance and the Ouija board and he says, oh, we should ask Sir Arthur Conan Doyle for his opinion. So at that point, I feel Agatha Christie is very much tipping her hat to the reader who will no doubt be familiar with both stories. And as you know, in real life, um, Arthur Conan Doyle really was a massive believer in parapsychology. Um, A lot of people in this this period were, and I do wonder if it was after the shock and trauma of World War One, that they needed something to believe in, in an age that was becoming less conventionally God-fearing. And also this idea of new technologies coming about and, and that making you feel like there could be other worlds, you know, the electricity and radioactivity, these unseen scientific things that were powerful. So it was a really interesting time for that sort of things. Another thing to point out about this book is that its dedication is to M.E.M., who would go on to be Agatha Christie's second husband, Max Malawin, who she was married to for the rest of her days, the archaeologist that she met when she went on a dig. Um, She writes, with whom I discuss the plot of this book to the alarm of those around us. And the alarm of those around us, I think, is the disapproval, really, of her family and maybe his, that you know, this young man was being swept up by this older woman. Um, I don't think either side particularly thought this was a this was a good match. And obviously, she was very wealthy, so they could have been suspicion of fortune hunters. Nonetheless, it was a very successful and happy marriage. So clearly, they were conscious of the opposition from the start. Now, as ever with Agatha Christie, there are now, as ever, I choose to read these novels in order because I think the span of Agatha Christie's work makes her this incredible documentarian of what social norms were in this period. And this is a very colonial, imperial novel in some ways. I mean, the fact that you have the two major characters, Major Burnaby, Captain Trevelyan, with their titles from World War One that they carried into civilian life. I think is very indicative of the period. This is still a period for Agatha Christie where you still find a lot of firearms around because daddy or uncle brought home a gun from the war, which seemingly was not decommissioned and neither were titles. More explicitly, Captain Wyatt has an Indian servant. Um, Very odd, very weird to come back with a colonial servant, but obviously something about that time. And he says the best thing about having a native servant, they understand orders. And... And as is typical of the time, that Indian servant has no character, no real agency, just someone to be referred to pejoratively. Mrs. Curtis says of that servant, that nasty native of his, nasty black fellow. I mean, this really is the most appalling racism, but I think very indicative of the time. And so important to read and be aware that, you know, this is what was going on. There's also, in a sort of slightly milder version, a lot of class prejudice. So, might Mr. Duke be a tradesman? The horror of having a working class person here. And we are, of course, when we look at the role of women. So the one area where Agatha Christie was very progressive was in the role of women. And she 
has moved, I think, from the 1920s of the flappers and the sort of bright young things who are quite sort of almost pastiche, um, feckless and superficial. Although we'll come back to that a little bit in Parallel End House with Emily Trefusis. And I think when people do love this story, it's because of Emily. She's a really compelling, memorable character. And when I came back to this book after 20 odd years, she's the thing I remembered. And actually, overall, I thought the mystery and the mechanics of the mystery were far better than I remembered. But she really stuck in the memory. There is a mention in the novel that curves are coming back in. So we are through the flapper craze and into a slightly different look of a woman. But even though Agatha Christie always foregrounds these amazingly strong, intelligent, bright women, it is fascinating that that's put in service often of beta males. And maybe that's progressive too. Like you don't need to be an alpha woman married to an alpha male. But it is interesting that all of this energy, all of this intelligence is quote unquote arguably thrown away on James Pearson. And I think this really does come back to Agatha Christie um, and her relationship with her her big brother who came to a bad end. And this idea that I couldn't save him in real life, whether this is conscious or subconscious, but my characters again and again, my female characters will save their, the men in their lives. So um, I think that is really interesting to see how in some ways Agatha Christie changes in her social values, but in some of her subconscious concerns, they really stem from her childhood. The, the fear of losing a big house will come to that at peril and house and the fear of not being able to save a, a dissolute young man. They seem to be very, very ongoing. Now, as with all these stories, when they're not featuring a Poirot or Marple, we tend not to have as many adaptations of them. But there was a TV version made by Granada TV. So that's um, in the Miss Marple series. So weirdly, they imposed Miss Marple on the series. Um, it's set in 1952, not 1931, as all of these seem to be, maybe because the costumes and the settings are cheaper and easier to find. But it's really, it's such an odd adaptation because it bears no relationship whatsoever to the original. Captain Trevelyan is murdered, but he, instead of being this retired, very wealthy man who lives, he's meant to be a candidate to be the next prime minister. And the show opens with him meeting Churchill and he's trying to cover up something in his past. And then Major Burnaby is just a guy he knew in the war who's basically his valet. Um, Enderby is, there's still a journalist or someone pretending to be a journalist, there's still Emily Trefusis trying to sort of, you know, get her fiancé off the hook. But the role of the Willits is completely different. The, the the meaning of Dartmoor Prison and all of that is totally different. Um, and because you have Miss Marple in it, there's not as much room for Emily Trefusis, which is a little bit annoying. And actually, the character of Emily Trefusis is rather different. So the whole thing, I think, is really pointless. It was released in 2006. There's no point watching it other than to see James Bond, Timothy Dalton as Trevelyan. Um, and it doesn't have the atmosphere. It doesn't have the gothic atmosphere either. So very, very odd and just speaks to that whole series, such a waste of money and time where they just felt... I feel they didn't have faith in Agatha Christie. How weird to spend all that effort adapting books that you fundamentally don't think are somehow quote unquote good enough for modern audiences and to just monkey about with them. So please, please ignore that version. Anyway, I hope this has tempted you to check out The Certificate Mystery. I really do think it's a very clever puzzle mystery. And if your taste does veer towards Sherlock Holmes, does veer towards the Gothic, then this is one for you. Um, and I'll speak a little bit more about it after the end credits with some spoilers. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
Okay, welcome back, listeners. Let's talk about the murder. So what I think is really fascinating about this book is I think you can detect it very early on, because very early on, we learn of Major Burnaby, I think on page nine or 10, we learn that Captain Trevelyan has won a competition with some money, but that Major Burnaby is boasting to someone else that he did it. So you're immediately alerted to the fact that he might be taking credit for things that he has not achieved. Um, we don't we don't yet know that he's then also claiming the money, but you know that he's not to be trusted if you pick up on that one detail. We will also discover later from Enderby that he had delivered the news of the winnings to Burnaby. And that then gives you the fact that he had a motive, which was the money. And we're also told that he'd lost a lot of money in a ramshackle investment scheme and that he had a tendency to do this. Unlike his friend Trevelyan, he was a very careful investor and saver. So you have the, the fact that Burnaby is not to be trusted. I think the final thing about him skiing is less easy to detect. You've really got to pick up on the different size skis. And then obviously when Emily finds the ski boots, that's the final the final little clue. But I think you should know who to suspect, even if you don't know how he quite pulled it off. The Willets, I think, is really fascinating. We're going to get into this a little bit with Perilla and House, but this idea of colonials not being quite to be trusted and this idea that they weren't who they said they were, that they were waiting for an escaped convict. I think for certain age British readers, the fact that this is set next to Dartmoor could give the clue because then you think, well, why are they renting the house so near the prison? But I do wonder about modern readers and how far they'd pick up on that. And obviously, it's a massive red herring that's hinged about and put about um, the novel. But really, I think the, the, the revelation about Burnaby claiming the crossword puzzle win early on is really, for me, immediately snapped me into figuring out who did this. But I do think it's ingenious. And I do think the sort of the skiing idea is ingenious. And I think what the TV adaptation probably did was decide that killing someone to win the football pool money wasn't a big enough motive. Um, But with Agatha Christie, so they had to make it this big, you know, my political career's at stake, blah, 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 or something, you know, very involved about family revenge. But the genius of Agatha Christie in some ways is that the motivations for her murders are very simple. Money, sex. And the money can seem trivial to modern readers, but if you're in desperate straits, if you're used to lying, if you're used to being sort of dishonest, maybe this seems just like a spontaneous idea. We're snowbound. I can do this. I can get it. So so I actually think it's actually psychologically very believable. And I think in a way, the banality of the motive is the power of the story. Like you have all this gothic atmosphere and the seance, but actually you've got to strip all of that way and get down to the banal evil pettiness of human character (laughs) so on that optimistic and wonderfully joyous note i wish you all a happy new year (laughs) 